Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. It is early in the morning, Monday, December the 18th, 2023. And this is a continuation of our discussion of the SEAT working papers prepared by Dr. Laura Snyder. And today we are going to be talking about working paper number five, which is titled, I think, very provocatively, extraterritorial taxation, refuting the rationales. And with a title like that, it sounds to me like there must be rationales to refute. So on that note, I'm here today with Laura and with Karen Albert in Australia. Well, how are you today? How are you, Karen? Yep, it's been a warm day in Australia today. Laura, warm day in, uh, are you in France? I'm in France and it's not warm at all. Um, I'll, uh, I'll add to what you just said that um, the material we're gonna cover today, you can find it in two different places. You can find it in the seat working paper, uh, number five, and you can also find it in an article published in The Tax Lawyer, which is a publication of the American Bar Association. And that article is called, Can Extraterritorial Taxation Be Rationalized? That was published spring of 2023. All right. Well, I would assume that your view is that it cannot be rationalized. Would that be accurate? That'd be absolutely correct, John. 100%? 100%. No doubt in your mind? No doubt in my mind. Karen, what's going on in your mind? Any doubt in your mind? No. This is so the U.S has to be different so this is one of the ways that they're going to be exceptional by taxing people who don't even live in their country and over the years there have been lots of different rationales put forward as to why it is fit and proper that u.s citizens should be taxed on their worldwide income regardless of whether they live in the united states or not and okay. i think laura's done an excellent job of listing uh, the main ones, main rationales that have been used and refuting every single one. Okay. Now, before we get to that, one of the things that I've always found sort of personally interesting about this whole discussion, debate, what have you, is the way it's defined, the sort of imaging, right? Because when we have this U.S. extraterritorial tax regime, what it really means is that the U.S. is imposing worldwide taxation on people who don't live in the United States or tax residents of other countries, right? So far, so good? Right. Then, but who are these people exactly? I mean, sure, there may be some of them are, you know, what would be called expats, but a lot of them are, are not expats at all. These are people who are long-term residents of other countries, maybe permanent, maybe never even lived in the United States. But yes, yeah, possibly born, possibly born in the country where they live. Exactly. Possibly born in the U.S. and moved back to their home country. Never made a dime in the United country. States, right? Never made a dime in the United States. Some of them, right? Right, right. So, really, what I mean, we talked about this in the previous podcast, but there's there's two things that have been going on 
kind of simultaneously. There's the, the U.S. tax code's gotten more complex and it's become a lot, lot easier to remain a U.S. citizen. And as it becomes easier to remain a U.S. citizen or not, not lose citizenship, be a dual citizen, et cetera, um, I think you need to look a lot more closely at these rationales um, because they, they make a lot less sense in a world where people are, can be citizens of multiple countries, where um, people can naturalize in, at a, in other countries and you know move and emigrate. Um, you know, this is something that didn't happen much in the 19th century. Um, or earlier, early 20th century, when when a lot of these rules and rationales came came about. So, why don't I start by kind of listing the um, the five broad areas that Laura's covered in the paper, and then we can go through them one by one. Um, so, Laura's listed allegiance that Americans should be taxed. Uh, overseas Americans should be taxed because they owe allegiance to the United States. Or the next one is the benefits rationale that the U.S. citizenship confers benefits. Um, one that a lot of or several academics have put forward is that U.S. Um, US citizens, by virtue of just their citizen citizenship, are members of U.S. society and therefore have an obligation to contribute to that society by paying tax. Um, and then there are some who say that this, that U.S. citizenship, yeah, there might be a tax cost, but it, it's worth it to be a U.S. citizen. And then the final one that she covers is called administrability. But basically what it's saying is, look, citizenship is a really easy way to determine whether you should be taxed or not. And um, other ways are, are harder to, to make a determination. So that those are the five. So why don't we start with allegiance and um, maybe Laura can explain to us why uh, that, that rationale is outmoded and really no longer relevant in modern society. Okay, well, so what you have here is, well, I, I'd like to just make a, a comment generally is, yeah, what I've written tries to address the most commonly often ration, commonly offered rationales, but really this is the game of whack-a-mole because as soon as you put down, as soon as you refute one rationale, someone who really wants to defend the system will just invent another one. Um, you'll notice when they do that they don't cite anything because there is nothing to cite to support their rationale. Um, but again, you know, you, you it's it's a never ending game of, you know, someone comes up, invents a rationale, you explain why that's not right. They invent another rationale, you explain why that's not right. Um, but what would, yes, what we're trying to do here is address the ones that are the most commonly offered. So with this allegiance rationale, this is one that um, you saw being used right after Cook was decided, you saw an article being published um, where someone basically argues um, kind of the very old idea of, of what it meant to, you know, live under the sovereigns of Europe, where you are a subject, you're not a citizen, and in that you um, are, don't have rights, 
you owe allegiance and you owe duties to your sovereign. And that's what this concept basically is. And this is completely outmoded concept. That's essentially Um, citizens as property, right? Citizens as property and citizenship as a nexus of obligation, um, not as something carrying rights. And what you see happen over the course of the, of the, uh, of the 20th century is you see, first of all, in the aftermath of, of World War II, you see the adoption of multiple human rights instruments where citizenship becomes a nexus of rights. And you hear, you hear the phrase of Hannah Arendt and then Chief Justice Earl Warren that uh, citizenship, what is citizenship? It is the right to have rights. That if you're not a citizen of some country, you have no rights because all your other rights flow through your citizenship. Um, so you see in the international human rights instruments that everyone has the right to a nationality. Um, no one can be arbitrarily deprived of their nationality, the right to change their nationality. And then you see this carried over from the international arena into the into the U.S. Supreme Court, where you see uh, the U.S. Supreme Court over a series of decisions um, from the basically in the 60s and early 70s um, under under Chief Juris Justice Earl Warren, a series of decisions where they basically say that Congress cannot adopt laws that forcibly destroy a U.S. citizen's citizenship. So they say you under the 14th Amendment, everyone born in the United States, at least, is has citizenship by virtue of the 14th Amendment. This means that Congress cannot adopt laws that that serve to destroy their citizenship. So you cannot say that someone automatically loses their citizenship uh, because they married uh, a a non-citizen, because they lived outside the United States for a certain amount of time, because they deserted, they were in the army and they deserted, because they voted in a foreign election. Um, And so you you see that this, that's what destroys this entire allegiance rationale, that, that citizenship is not a nexus of obligations, it is a nexus of rights. And citizens of the United States do not owe permanent allegiance or duty to support the sovereign of the United States. That that those concepts are simply not valid anymore. They belong to a different era. Now, Laura, uh, so it's interesting to hear you talk about the sort of evolution of uh, what it means to be a citizen. And, And I would agree with you that certainly in the aftermath of the two great wars of the last century, there was attention paid to this. Uh, with the 1948 post-World War II stuff, uh, you know, uh, being the most, the most significant. Uh, it's interesting that cases like Cook versus Tate, they were way before this, right, 1924. So can I ask you this? How would you imagine... I mean, let's say that Cook and T- versus Tate were taking place in, say, 1955, seven years after the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Would the case have been argued any differently, do you think? Well, I would hope that it would be. Um, well, in the 50s, maybe not quite yet, but certainly in the 60s, I think it would have been. Um, I don't think that you. I don't think that you'd have a Supreme Court justice doing what the, the Supreme Court did in, in Cook v. Tate, I don't think that they would say, you know, yes, citizen confers. What, what was the exact terminology? Do you remember, John? 
citizen by its very nature citizenship confers benefits and so you should have I mean, yeah well u.s citizenship by its very nature confers is a benefit or something like that yeah i don't i don't but, No, the u.s government by its very nature benefits its citizens think of that the u.s government by its very nature benefits its citizens yeah well we can talk about that too <laughs> um that, that's a whole other discussion that you can have outside of the, the question of taxation. Um, but I have I have a lot of difficulty imagining a war in court uh, coming up with that kind of decision. So, so you think that uh, if Cook were say were arguing the sixties or you know later, sort of you know the post World War II a rethinking of what citizenship meant. You think that Cook versus State might have been argued very differently? Well, the decision would have been very different. I don't know how the parties would have argued it. Hopefully, they would have argued it differently, but I'm sure the decision would have been quite different. Right. So, so if nothing else, that shows us that uh, reliance on Cook versus State to justify citizenship taxation is relying on a case with a different concept of citizenship. Well, what exists now or later, right? This is this basically the theme of, of all of these papers that we're talking about. This is the underlying, one of the underlying themes, which is the world today is not at all the world of Cook v. Tate. We have very different attitudes about citizenship. We have very different attitudes about equal protection. Citizenship itself isn't what it was. Taxation itself isn't what it was. Everything's a change. So why do you think these law professors continually put, you know, cite Cook versus Tate? Well, I mean, aren't they supposed to be progressive and thinking about what this stuff means in real time? Does it make sense? I think there's three things going on. First of all, it's easy, right? It's easy to do that. It, it, it takes a huge amount of work to question Cook v. Tate. Um, you know, I know because I've done it. Um, I think also it would take people in their position would have to be quite brave and willing to kind of buck the, you know, um, generally accepted ideas because, you know, no, to them, this is set in stone and you can't question it. So to go against that, I think would take someone very brave and very secure in their position and in, in their ideas. Um, and I also think intellectually, it's quite difficult. It takes a lot of effort to do it. So I think there's a lot of reasons for them not to do it. And then on top of that, I would add, they're quite happy with the current system. So what would motivate them to question Cook v. Tate? Second rationale. Yeah, I want to pick up on what Laura, well, what you were saying about um, the U.S. government provides benefits to its citizens. And that's the second rationale is that you've got benefits of being a citizen you can vote you can move back to the u.s so why don't you pay taxes based on that so we're moving on to the next to the next rationale yeah. then yeah. yeah well there's a lot of problems with that um first of all um anybody who's studied taxation and i mean really studied it not so-called tax experts who think they studied it uh, they would know that 
it's been over 100 years that anybody has thought that a benefits rationale is an acceptable justification for taxation. Um, you know, you can go back to, to uh, Edward Seligman, who, who was the leading proponent of the 16th Amendment, and he described the benefits rationale as indefensible. Indefensible because it, abs it is absolutely impossible to apportion to any individual his exact particular share in the benefits of governmental activity. The advantages are quantitatively immeasurable. And there's, there's a, and I talk in the paper about multiple people who have categorically rejected this as a rationale for any taxation, not just taxing overseas citizens. So, yeah, in other words, taxation is just for the government to raise money regardless. Well, that's their, yes, yes, that, that, that it just, it's useless, it's pointless, and it goes nowhere to use this as a justification. If the government's going to use taxation to raise revenue, they're going to do it. And whatever benefits people get is is beside the point. Yes. Um, and then, okay, but this benefits thing just keeps coming back, keeps coming back. Everybody keeps, you know, when you try and explain the problems with the system and they try and justify it, they try and grab all, all of these different uh, perceived benefits and say, this is why you should be happy. So, okay, then let's look at all these benefits that people are saying we should be paying for through taxation. Well, okay, the right to vote. You get to vote and so you should be paying taxes. Well, that's, first of all, other countries don't do that. Um, you know, when they allow their overseas citizens to vote, it has nothing to, you know, it's not tied to whether they tax or not. The other, another response to that is when Cook was decided in 1924, Americans had no possibility of voting from overseas. Zero. So certainly that's not what the uh, the court in Cook was thinking. Actually, about. Laura, could you pause for me? I'd like you to reinforce that point again. In 1924, overseas Americans had no right to vote. They had no possibility of voting. In other words, this is really voting. revisionist history, right, for the people defending this, right? Yeah, but you can go further than that because it's also present day. There are many obstacles for uh, people overseas uh, to vote. Um, can people from overseas vote today? Sure, a lot of people can, but there exist many obstacles still. Can all overseas Americans vote? Absolutely not. And I'll, I'll, I'll point to just probably the, the most commonly pointed to example among others is that um, people who were born, American citizens who were born outside the United States and have never lived in the United States, they can register to vote only if uh, their U.S. citizen parent was registered in a in a uh, defined list of states, but not any state. There's, I think it's about 13 states that will not, if your parent was there, their last place that they registered to vote was in one of those 13 states, I think Florida is one of those states, um, there's no way that their U.S. citizen uh, child born outside the U.S. who's never lived in the U.S. will ever will be able to register to vote. They'd have to move to the United States and establish their own U.S. address in order to be able to register to vote. Um, you know, there's there's you know, there's other obstacles to that. And then once you're registered to vote, there's a lot of obstacles to actually voting. Uh, a lot of you know states will make it uh, more or less difficult to vote from overseas. Um, and then let's not forget that um, there is the 24th Amendment abol abolishing poll taxes. 
And it says that um, the right of the citizens to vote in a federal election shall not be denied or abridged by reason of failure to pay a poll tax or other tax. So I think at least the spirit of the 24th Amendment is to sever any sort of tax liability from voting. So this whole, oh, you get to vote, uh, so you should pay tax is, is absurd. Yeah, I wonder also, I'm not sure to what extent this bears in the conversation, but there is, in the U.S., there is no constitutional right to vote anyway. That's right. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. Amazing thing. So really what we have is, well, you know, we're going to rely on the, we're, we're going to, we're going to justify the 2024 Cook versus Tate, 1924 Cook versus Tate decision on the basis that American citizens have the right to vote, even though they didn't then. And in any case, it's not true that all American citizens have the right to vote generally, and overseas Americans are somewhat uh, limited depending on how they got their citizenship, correct? That's right, Tom. Yeah, well, you know, these are these are good arguments. Voting, yeah, absolutely. Some, some because so in other words, because some people might be able to vote, everybody should be subject to taxes, right? Yeah, well, exactly. You know, that's the American way. Cool. Next rationale. Yeah, what's really funny though is when you're when you're arguing with someone like this on on Twitter or whatever, they'll come back and say. Oh, but you should maintain your U.S. citizenship because you can go to the consulate and they'll protect you if anything should ever happen. Is that the third rationale? Well, that's part of the benefits rationale. Oh, my There's God, that's one. totally insane. I mean, it seems to me that most Americans abroad need protection from the U.S. government. Probably true. But in any case, um, I mean, I think but in any case, real the U.S. Example. will charge you for anything that, you, that happens. I mean, Consular services, evacuation, etc. You get charged the cost of it. So why should you be paying taxes to support it when you're already paying the cost of it? Well, don't we have a very relevant, a very recent example of this in the area of COVID vaccines? Uh, Americans abroad were not given COVID vaccines, correct? Yeah, uh, there's 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 a lot going on there. First of all, at consular services. Um, consular services are not funded by federal taxes. They are, they do not, the, the, the consulates that operate, U.S. consulates that operate outside the United States are solely funded by the fees that they collect from the people that come in and, and pay for their services. So, you know, that, and, and in fact, um, there's a, I think it's around 11, 10, 11, 12% of the fees that they collect it's actually turned over to the treasury. So they actually make a profit off of, of what they charge for consular services. So you, there's, it's, taxes, taxes do not fund consular services. Um, then, and, and some of the fees are, are quite high. Uh, I, I would think that a uh, person who lives in the United States would be shocked to learn how much it costs to get something notarized at, at the consulate. It costs $50 per document. And they basically have a monopoly because it's very difficult to get a document notarized for US purposes uh, anywhere except if you're outside the United States to do that anywhere outside of, uh, a consulate. So they have a monopoly on it and they will charge you 50 bucks a pop. And if you live in the United States, you know that it's pretty easy to get a document notarized uh, 
five, ten dollars, if not for free. Um, so uh, let me see. I was the John, remind me where we were going with that. <laughs> we were looking at the, the finishing up the benefits rationale uh -huh. that was on access to consular services. Okay, yeah, a benefit, so, right? Yeah, so that it to say that you have access to then there's there's another, um, well. Some people will talk about um, some sort of consular protection, but if you are a dual citizen living in the country of your dual citizenship, um, you're the the protection consular protection you're allowed from a U.S. embassy is pretty limited. And if they know mm -hmm. you're a dual citizen, there's probably not a lot they're going to be willing to do for you. I guess, for example, if you you know you find yourself in prison or something like that. So you know that's not something as a, as a U.S. citizen. Uh, you can count on, uh, and right. um, and then people will say, "Oh, um, the United States will evacuate you from an emergency situation, and so you should pay your taxes based on that." Well, okay, other countries evacuate their citizens much more reliably and much faster than the United States does, and, does and without necessarily charging, without sticking them with a bill. Um, so the United States, by law has to seek reimbursement when they evacuate a citizen, a, a, you know, a civilian. And if you look at the history of the United States evacuating citizens, you'll see that you cannot rely on the United States to evacuate people. Um, maybe no. they will, maybe they won't. Um, most of the time they'll do it only if there's a lot of pressure to do it. So a lot of time has already gone by and people have either found other solutions other countries will evacuate U.S. citizens, understanding that the U.S. isn't going to evacuate them. And then there was the COVID question, yes, that John John mentioned. Um, COVID was an issue in several ways um, for overseas Americans. First of all, the the U.S. said when you know used taxpayer dollars, um, at least used federal resources, probably that's a better terminology, to say that they were going to provide uh, COVID uh, vaccine to all Americans. Well, it turns out that that only meant people living in the United States. Um, there was nothing was done to provide vaccines to Americans living outside the U.S., even those in countries where it was very difficult to access the vaccine. Um, you also saw that the United States was um, providing free COVID tests to people in the United States and requiring people traveling to the United States to have uh, um, a negative COVID test, but absolutely unwilling to do anything to help Americans overseas get a COVID test. So, you know- Well, the key again, point, Laura, is simply that they were giving benefits to resident Americans they wouldn't give to non-resident Americans, right? Absolutely. And they were using federal funds to do that, federal funds to federal resources to do that. But, but we're supposed to be happy to be paying federal taxes the benefits? By the way, speaking of those taxes, Karen, would you say that Americans abroad are actually taxed more punitively than resident Americans? Well, if they want to, um, if, if they want to establish themselves economically where they live, yes, because everything that they buy into, a small business and investment, it's all where they live and that's foreign to the u.s and the u.s tax 
code is really it's xenophobic, isn't it? I, th I think it, I think it probably is. So in other words, the U.S. is not providing benefits to res to non-resident Americans, but taxing them more punitively than resident Americans in many cases, right? Right. Well, okay. Well, then let can we move on to the next rationale? Sure. I think there's one. I think there's one more thing to be said about this benefits rationale, um, because this has came up in something I was reading recently. Um, a high-profile so-called tax expert wrote in their 2023 publication. Their justification for the current system was that Americans should see the Americans overseas should see the the tax system as they're paying taxes as a way to. Uh, it's what they pay to make sure that they can return to the United States. And this is a an, an, uh, rationale that you see offered by other people that you have um, you know, the right to enter the United States and so you should have to pay tax for that. Um, and I guess the corollary to that is you're free from being deported from the United States. But I think you have to address that first of all, when uh, after Cook was decided, uh, there was a period of well, there it, when Cook was decided, um, there were there were anyone coming in from the Western Hemisphere. There were very few legal restrictions on immigration from Canada, Mexico, Cuba, Central and South America. So even when Cook was decided, uh, there's no way that the court could have perceived this benefit, one of the benefits of citizenship, citizenship of being the ability to enter the United States. Non-citizens had the easy, many non-citizens had an easy ability to enter the United States. And should also say that even if you are a citizen in the United States, this doesn't mean you are going to be able to uh, enter, and it doesn't mean you're going to be allowed to stay. The United States has a pretty sordid history of rounding up people that they don't like, usually of Mexican or South American ancestry, and basically transporting them to the border and making them leave not caring whether they're citizens or not. Um, but there's a long documented history of that happening. So you can't say that US citizenship, uh, first of all, and, and I, I'll also add, um, leaving your country as well as returning to your country are both human rights. So how is it that you say you're gonna tax people for their human right to return to their country? Makes no sense. Um, last I, you know, Human rights have no meaning if you have to pay in order to exercise them. Well, Laura, is it the case that an American citizen does have a right to enter the United States? Well, no. I mean, in, the sense, in the sense that it's something that can't be taken away. I mean, could Congress pass a law barring Americans abroad from entering, a non-resident American from entering the United States unless they can prove they filed taxes? they probably could wow interesting interesting the reason i ask is that there are some constitutions of which canada is interestingly one uh where it's written right into the constitution that a citizen has the right to enter or to leave uh, now interestingly uh you know, United States citizens don't even have the right to leave the United States without a pass, without a U.S. passport. Well, uh, even with a U.S. passport, they don't necessarily have the right to leave. I would think they could be stopped. Um, yeah. But and 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 of course, there is now the um, you know the 
if you have, what is it, a certified debt of 50000 or more to the IRS, the State Department can revoke your passport? Index to inflation. Completely. I think it's probably yeah. index. But, but that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are various rules. There's that. I mean, there's child support obligations, et cetera. I mean, there are, there are tax-related reasons, okay, uh, that prohibit people from enter from leaving the United States. That's right. Not a great country in terms of in recognized individual human rights, is it? That's, a, that's an understatement, John. You think? All right, Karen, let's move on to the next one. So the, ne the next one, you, you'll hear people say that um, paying taxes is just a cost of being a member of U.S. society. Ah. And they, so you're paying to be, be to be a member of the society, and that everyone who's a member of the society ought to be contributing to that society by paying taxes. Sounds like Ron Wyden, you know, on this proposed uh, wink wink billionaires tax. It's not that they're not complying with the tax code; it's that they don't pay any taxes. What's also really remarkable about that rationale is if, for example, you look at some of Kirsch's articles, he will say, well, what are the signs that you're still a member of the U.S. society? Because you keep in touch with your family and friends at home. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because you listen to, I don't know, news programs, because you teach American culture to your children. And basically he's saying you are being who you are. I mean, who are yeah. you supposed to be? Are you supposed to deny your family and your friends and deny your culture so that you're not taxed by the United States? It's completely nonsensical. Well, well I, and then the United States doesn't see you as a member of the of U.S. society because you have trouble with bank accounts, retirement plans. There's all sorts of tax things that you can't get if you're not living in the U.S., well, you are. There are many ways in which you you are. The message is crystal clear that you are not considered to be a member of U.S. society. There, uh, most U.S. banks, if not all of them, well, nearly all U.S. banks will not allow an American citizen who lives outside the United States who does not have a U.S. address. They will not allow them to have a bank account. Now, I don't know what clearer sign you need to 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 you know, to say you are not a member of our society. We don't trust you enough to even have a basic bank account. Um, the uh, United States, uh, the rules for tax advantage retirement programs, um, to be able to participate in those fully, you have to have a United States address. And, and well, John and Karen, you'll understand the rules for that better than I will. But basically, if you are living and earning outside the United States, you cannot continue to contribute to a U.S. tax advantage retirement program. There's another clear message. You're not considered a member of U.S. society. You are not entitled to claim the advanced child tax credit if you don't live in the United States. You're not entitled to the earned income tax credit. You're not entitled to the work opportunity tax credit. So it's, 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 it's the tax system itself who is rejecting overseas Americans as members of U.S. society. The IRS serves domestic uh, taxpayers very differently from how they fail to serve the uh, Americans living outside the United States. Uh, Americans are excluded, um, overseas Americans are excluded from being able to benefit from a number of IRS services. Um, there's you know, no in-person offices outside the United States. You can't call the IRS toll-free from outside the United States. 
there's a whole list of IRS services they're excluded from. And then we've all also talked about how Americans overseas have been entirely excluded from any sort of COVID-19 assistance. So this suggestion that uh, Americans should be taxed because they're a member of the U.S. society is just makes no sense. So the way you talk about this, Laura, it sounds to me, I mean, if I were a congressman or a, you know, somebody in the administration there, I would look at overseas Americans as, you know, great people to tax because they cost us nothing. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that explains it. I mean, imagine being able to tax people without even pretending to supply them with any benefits or anything. We don't consume federal resources. We don't consume any federal resources. That's absolutely right. And when we seek to, we're pretty much always excluded from it. So I think, you know, you, you talk about, you, you talked about Professor Kirsch, I think a minute ago. Um, and, you know, my impression of uh, his general approach and his writing is that he, when he talks about Americans abroad, he's really talking about expats. I don't even think he even acknowledges the whole, you know, group of people with no connection to the United States at all, right? Accidentals or Not that know, I immigrants, etc. Am I right yeah. on that? I don't think he does. Yeah, well, so in other words, part of the issue here seems to me to be, what do you mean by a non-resident American, Right. Because if you define it so narrowly that it's somebody who grew up in the United States and just, you know, left the country for a few years to study or, you know, do some work or something, I don't think that the citizenship taxation thing is justifiable regardless. But I think it makes it a lot easier, you know, to make the argument that these are somehow, you know, part of our, our group, so to speak, right? I think if you've got... If you're talking about people who are outside the United States temporarily and the center of their financial interest stay in the United States, they're concerned by any of this anyway. Right. They're not the ones that are having the the problems yeah. with it. Yeah. Correct, correct, correct. Oh my God, I mean, there's just these Americans, you find them everywhere, all shapes, sizes, forms, behind every tree in every country in the world. Well, given, given how easy it is to now be and certainly to maintain U.S. citizenship, absolutely. That's right. The more taxpayers, the better. I mean, do you think, Laura, that really the United States sees its citizens as taxpayers primarily? Yes, and I think Americans see themselves. The Americans have been taught to see themselves primarily as taxpayers. This is how they justify, you know, when they object to something the government does, they will justify it by saying, well, I'm a taxpayer and those are my taxpayer dollars. They see themselves first as taxpayers, probably second as either consumers or workers. I don't know that they see themselves as citizens at all. And if they do, it's certainly, you know, low on the list of. of it's, it's so they can wave the flag, basically, if they yeah. do. Yeah, that's yeah. right. But so that, I, I guess that helps us move to the next um, ben, um, rationale that you had, which is, you know, people say, well, hey, U.S. citizenship, it's so great. It's worth paying taxes for. 
Well, I think that, you know, that's interesting because, you know, when you look at Americans abroad and their reluctance to confront this issue or fight back, you know, I've often thought that that many Americans are not opposed to citizenship taxation because they see it as a symbol of their value of their citizenship. In other words, other citizenships are so worthless compared to American citizenship that they're not even worth taxing. Yeah, well, but citizenship is right. So are we going to tax you so that you get, you know, you have to pay for your rights? You know, that's an interesting question. Is that, is that one of Laura's rationales or not? That's one of Laura's refutations, right? The way she refutes this one about work, whether yeah. it's worth it. Yeah, this, this is a very, very interesting question. I mean, what are your views on that? If something is a right, can the government tax it? It seems, I think the, the idea there is, is, well, first of all, no, you, you should not, there should not be obstacles. The government should not be placing obstacles um, in, in trying to discourage you from, from exercising your rights and certainly not charging you to exercise your rights. Because if you have to pay to exercise a human right, it has lost its meaning as a human right. It means that people who don't have the money can't don't have the right. And then it's no longer a human right, is it? So, so a right, though, a right, Laura, as I understand, I'd be interested in your view on this, both of you. I think a right is protection from the government, primarily, right? A protection. There are things they can't touch. Would that make sense? It's, yes, and it is mostly from the government. I think there are some rights you have, whether it's the government encroaching on that right or someone else. But yeah. So in other words, uh, so if a right is uh, something you have protection from the government, but the government is charging for the right, I mean, doesn't that turn the government into sort of you know modern day versions of Don Carleone, you know, going around neighborhoods saying. It's a protection scheme. <laughs> yeah, protection racket, right? You've just negated the right. You've essentially yeah. negated the right. Yeah. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, if you look at it from, from another another point of view, um, you know, Ronald Reagan's 1981 inaugural address said something to the effect of... Uh, uh, you know, are, are we a, are, are we a country that has a government or a country or, or a government that has a country, right? And I think this is really the issue of whether, uh, you know, these modern democracies are, in the final result, run by their citizens or run by the government. I mean, if the government can charge for, uh, for, for rights, it seems to me that you've evolved to the point where individuals no longer have any relevance in the country at all. Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. There's, there's, a, there's a certain point where people have devalued citizenship to the point where they are willing to accept that you should have to pay for these rights that should come with citizenship automatically. Um, you know, it's it, because again, you, it's impossible in today's world to protect your human rights without a citizenship. 
-hmm. Yeah. So if a government taxes rights, though, it, it's sort of like only the government matters, right? You know, the individual doesn't matter. And I think that this is a theme that we see run, you know, running through all this kind of stuff. What, what's the difference between taxing citizenship and taxing, you know, uh, free speech? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, what's the difference between, you know, any one of these things, right? Exactly. Tax exactly. on equal protection. We won't exactly. discriminate against you, but you have to pay us to not be discriminated against. I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's to me, it's so obvious. It's difficult for me to understand how it's not obvious to others. Well, let's work on that. Why is it not obvious? I mean, it clearly is not. You know, so, Laura, so much of your work um, seems to me to be based on the assumption that individuals do have rights. Fair statement? Yes, of yes, and wouldn't it be a scary world if we didn't? Well, I, hey, I, I I agree with you totally. You know, I'm totally, you know, absolutely. My question to you is, why do so many people not see it this way? Well, honestly, I I don't know the answer to that, John, and and. And I suspect you have some ideas. Um, what came to my head when you asked the question is, um, you know, Americans are are taught that, um, you know, they have these constitutional rights, and that these constitutional rights are so great and wonderful, and no one else in the world has these great and wonderful set of rights. And what Americans are not taught, and even if they are told this, I think they have a very difficult time accepting it because it runs counter to everything that they've been taught about the greatness of the country. But Americans don't have human rights. Yes, the United States has, has signed and ratified multiple human rights, international human rights instruments, but um, Congress barely recognizes them and the courts refuse to enforce them. Um, so there are multiple, a multitude of rights in these, in these instruments that are not anywhere in the constitution. Um, and, and uh, Americans, I think, if you want me to frankly answer your question, I think they've been brainwashed into believing things about their country, about themselves, about their rights that simply are not true. Well, I, I think that, I, I think that there's, there's, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, you know, I would add a couple of things. Uh, one thing I would add is this, that what I've always found interesting is that even on, even on the rights that the United States recognizes, the way the right is defined is whatever the limitation is in the U.S. on the right. Okay, it's not an expansive. In other words, the U.S. definition of the right, okay, would be the outer limit of the right. Even even if the international agreement was more expand expansive, that's right. That's, right. Uh, that's exactly. Yeah, right. Oh, absolutely, the rights are only in the Constitution. They are, and they are not outside the Constitution. Absolutely. 
Yeah. It's it's really it's an amazing thing, and it 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 brings me back to um, was it Brandeis who wrote that that great paper a hundred years ago on the right of privacy? Was that Justice Brandeis? I don't I don't know. Privacy as the as the dominant human right. Let me just see here. Uh, and then you know you know you look at the. I mean, in U.S. culture, privacy is not an interest that has, is particularly recognized. Would you agree? Oh yeah, that's what, if you if you live in Europe, you you understand that very clearly. Here we have it. Yes, I pulled it up. An 1890 article, Harvard Law Review, Warren and Brandeis: The Right to Privacy. This article defines privacy as sort of the bedrock human right. Okay. Now, it is interesting to me that in the um, Roe versus Wade case, uh, was it Powell, was it Justice Powell who wrote the decision in that? Sounds right, but I, I don't know. Well, anyway, so what he does is he reaches into the Constitution to find a right of privacy, right? You know, and that was that was what that whole decision was grounded on. But in any case, uh, you know, this is a, you know, maybe not quite a human right in, in terms of being recognized in these instruments, but an important right that is not taken seriously in the United States at all. I think, right? But anyway, um, I think American citizens. Uh, live life with a severe disconnect between the perception and the reality. I, I think um, to, 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 to close on the, on this worth the tax cost rationale and, you know, um, you know, you, you, your citizenship is, is yet worth the tax cost. And so if you're not happy with it, just renounce. Um, I think the people that say that don't understand that there's been, you know, there's a lot of obstacles to renouncing U.S. citizenship. First of all, people shouldn't have to renounce their U.S. citizenship. Citizenship is a human right. Uh, but to the extent someone feels that they really have to renounce, that doesn't mean they can. Um, you are likely not going to renounce if you're not a citizen of at least one other country. Um, occasionally, people renounce and are stateless, but that's extremely rare. Um, there are countries... Uh, where it's very difficult to naturalize. So, you know, if you're living in Japan, for example, um, it's going to be a very lengthy process to to become a naturalized Japanese citizen. Um, renouncing is very expensive. Um, the fee right now, the consular fee alone, $2,350. The State Department has said that they're going to reduce it. I haven't seen a timeline for that. So until I see a timeline for that, I'm I'm don't consider that all that relevant. Um, and then on top of that, uh, depending on your circumstances, you would have a, a, an exit tax to pay. And during COVID-19, it was virtually impossible to renounce because all the consulates were closed and you can only renounce in person. And even today, there's still a huge backlog um, of people you know, wanting to renounce and not being able to get an appointment until you know, months away. So, you know, again, that just makes this worth the tax cost rationale that much more absurd. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So then after you've 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 refuted all of these rationales, there are people who will come back and say, but wait a minute, we've got to figure out some way of telling whether someone should be taxed by the U.S. And citizenship is real easy. So you, you gotta, you're a citizen, either you are or you aren't. Easy to, to, to choose. So why don't we just use it? Because it's a good proxy for where your connections are. Assuming that it is true. Um, because there are, are people out there who still today don't understand that they're U.S. citizens. But let's assume that it's true, generally. You're a citizen or not. You know you, you know if you are or not. That's not a reason to tax someone. You, you need a lot better reason to tax someone than their citizenship, their nationality. Um, also, I would say, is that simple? Maybe, maybe not. But let's look at what's not simple administering a tax system outside the United States is not simple. It's extremely complicated, and that's why the IRS can't do it. And as Karen and John know, because we wrote an article about this, uh, what, two, two, three years ago we published it, where it's a quite lengthy article detailing all of the multiple complexities of administering a tax uh, system outside the United States and how the IRS fails to do so. So an, an extraterritorial tax system is not administrable by any means. You know, let's uh, let's expand this maybe a little bit. So um, I, I think uh, among the people who take that position, right, would be Professor Zelensky, uh, who has written in the past about wanting to use citizenship as a proxy for domicile, I think, right? Right. Um, you know, doesn't that, you know, going back to our discussion this morning about how, you know, citizenship has evolved, right, uh, over the years, doesn't that reflect a, a sort of a misunderstanding of what citizenship actually is? Well, I think it's a, it's a very 19th century understanding of citizenship. Almost direct out of Cook versus Tate, right? Mm -hmm. It links back to the allegiance um, rationale, and then in fact, Zelensky also, in his writing, uh, suggests that you know this allegiance rationale is also a a, a perfectly good way to, to justify. Does he say that? Yeah, he he uses the term allegiance um, in his writing. Yeah. Well, in any case, uh, sitting where we are and couple weeks away from 2024, so say 2024, I don't see any correlation at all between citizenship and domicile, do you? Not with dual and triple citizenship. I mean, you know, uh, people move a lot more now than they did in 1924. I, I think that what this reflects is that, you know, for many, many years, uh, you know, citizenship, I think it's really equating citizenship and residence, isn't it? Right. Because, yeah. you know, for so much of history, uh, you know, citizenship and residence are pretty much synonymous. Right. And a lot of Congress and the public conflate those two even today. But And, and don't forget, um, under old rules, um, pre-1960s, 
if you were a woman and you married a non-citizen and lived outside the United States, you lost your citizenship. If you, you know, lived, uh, if you're a naturalized citizen, citizen and you lived outside the United States for a certain amount of time, you lost your U.S. citizenship. If you voted in a foreign election, you lost your citizenship. If you, you so, you know, there was a, there was a certain link, you know, the longer you lived overseas, the more likely it was you would no longer be a U.S. citizen. Right. Have you read the book, Amanda Frost, I'm Not American, Laura? Have you read that yeah, book? I, I, not recently, but I, yeah, I did read yeah. it, yeah. You know, for anybody listening to this podcast, I want to give a shout out. Uh, Professor Amanda Frost has wrote a book a couple of years ago called I Am Not American. It's really a, a wonderful uh, history of, of this sort of problem, um, you know, in very non-technical language. And, uh, you know, if nothing else, you're left uh, with a sense of it at the end that, uh, you know, your, your, your citizenship is, is all in the United States in a somewhat precarious state and always has been, right? Um, yeah. yeah, there's always been. But uh, a very interesting book in any case, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, this has been a really interesting discussion, Laura. It has, it has. And, and uh, Laura, I got to tell you that, you know, at the beginning of this podcast, I, I really didn't know if citizenship taxation could be justified or not. But, you know, you completely convinced me, Laura, it's a bad thing. I'm glad to hear that, John. Yeah. And and um and I guess the only what I just add or to conclude with is you can look at all these rationales and they have some commonalities. Um they do not contend. None of these rationales contend. They're all theoretical. None of them contend with the reality of the system in place today. And that I hope we will talk about in um our next or one of our next discussions. Could we say that what they have in common is they're all total bullshit? Yeah, I think we could say that. Why don't we? Why don't we just adopt that? It's easier for the masses to understand. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, this has been another great conversation, and I thank you both for this. And uh, any concluding thoughts, comments? This is, of course, uh, working paper number five in part, and the a broader uh, the broader one. What's it called again? Uh, oh, you mean the can extraterritorial? Yeah, tax yeah. The, the tax uh, the paper published into tax lawyer. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Right. All right. Well, this is great, and of course, the purpose of these podcasts is to break all these things down into more digestible chunks. And today we were talking about whether this can actually be rationalized, justified. So thank you very much for this. Karen, anything further you want to say? Just that the, the U.S. is so exceptional. <laughs> but this is not where it should be exceptional because it really does not make sense to be taxed. I know, you know, it's, the U.S. Is, is either exceptionally bad or exceptionally good. It's just these days it's moving more towards exceptionally bad, I think, but. Whatever, Laura, final thoughts? Oh, just thank you, Karen. Thank you, John. All right, looking forward to the Thanks. next one.